0: Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger.
1: Will, recently I had a chance to speak with a guy named Cisco Aguilar. Okay, who's that? Well, he's a Nevada attorney, and after working for about 14 years for tennis legend Andre Agassi, he found a new
2: calling. You know, coming from a working class family, my parents weren't educated, my mom didn't finish high school, but they provided for my family and they knew the importance of education. So Aguilar decides to build a school. When I was a kid, I grew up in a pretty tough neighborhood, didn't have the greatest schools, and my parents worked hard.
1: In 2019, um, lawyers, he helped doctors, found a Catholic prep school in North Las Vegas, and he now serves as the chairman of its board of trustees, and, and it serves mostly students, students from low-income families.
2: Went to do the filing, They're kids, he says, who grew up and like kids. him. And this school allows kids to go to school four days a week and work one day a week in a professional office environment. When you have a school of 86% Latinos, 10% black, you don't see that representation at the executive level in a lot of our businesses and corporations, but it teaches those students that they have a right to be there, they can be there, and a lot of times kids like us don't understand that we belong in executive offices, that we belong in law firms, we can be judges. So, Aguilar, he
0: chairs the school's board right. now, but does he still have a day job?
1: Well, he does, and that's the other thing I was going to mention.
2: All right. I'm Cisco Aguilar, and I'm the Secretary of State in Nevada.
1: He happens to be Nevada's Secretary of State.
2: okay. I,
0: I knew his name sounded familiar. I was just waiting for how this was connected to democracy.
1: Right, right. So, Aguilar ran for that job in 2022 as a Democrat, and he wins by just two percentage points. So- Beating this guy common. President Trump and I lost an election In 2020 because of a rigged election Oh boy Yeah, yeah. This this is Jim Marchant. Now, you might recall he had an earlier run, one for Congress, and he lost then, too. And when I'm Secretary of State of Nevada, we're going to fix it. And when my coalition of Secretary of State candidates around the country get elected, we're going to fix the whole country. And President Trump is going to be president again in 2024. Well,
0: now that is scary.
1: It is scary. You know, Marchant was part of an effort Uh, which basically failed to get the big lie promoting conspiracy mongering Trump acolytes into key elected offices around the country, especially secretary of state positions. Because, you know, as as you know, these are essentially the chief supervisors of elections, among other things, in most states.
0: All right. But to get back to Aguilar, I guess he's secretary Aguilar. How does he go from starting a prep school then to running against Marchant?
1: Yeah. Look, let's be clear. Aguilar is a natural politician. He knows how to connect with an audience. He knows how to read an audience. Look, he was student body president in college. So he's been at it a long time. He clearly loves Nevada. But Aguilar told me it all comes back to that school he built and what the kids there told him.
2: So the reason I ran for Secretary of State in November 2020, to start talking to our students about their parents voting or whether or not they were going to engage in the election process, and they said no. They said, why would we vote when nobody wants us or cares about our vote? Our vote doesn't matter. I just thought, we can't continue to do the education work we're doing in Nevada. If we have the fifth largest school district in Clark County, that school district is majority-minority, and these are the parents we need to get to the polls if we're going to change our educational outcomes in Nevada. Without these parents going to the polls, We're not going to hold elected officials accountable for what they're doing for public education. And that's when I got fired up and said, if I'm going to continue to do this work, I need to make sure these parents have access to the ballot box. Siva, that
1: sounds great. It's a noble cause. Uh, How's it been working out for him? Well, you know, he's only been in office for a few months, but he is doing some things already. He has requested $61 million from the legislature to enhance the election process. About half of that would create a centralized database to track voter rolls. And you'll hear more about that in a second. But, you know, we also talked about the politics of his position, because one of the things I wanted to know was how he balances his ideological ideological commitments commitments. with his role as a public servant, especially in this weird post-Trump environment that has become so
2: toxic. It goes back to my training as an attorney, right? As an attorney, you to advocate a position, but also to you have to understand the facts and use the facts to present a case. I've had the great opportunity to serve as chair of the Nevada Athletic Commission, which Mm -hmm. regulates boxing and UFC. I made some critical changes to that commission when I was there and when I had leadership position. I understand what it means to be a regulator. Mm -hmm. A regulator is somebody who's, you know, impartial, looks at the whole situation, gathers as many facts and data points as you can to make a decision that's in the best interest of the entire constituency. And my job as Secretary of State is to serve every single Nevadan first, and then we can get into discussion about policy agreements. And the way you do that, it doesn't matter whether they're Democrat, nonpartisan or Republican. It's making sure that you are a listener. You are talking to everybody in this state, whether or not they agree with you, disagree. You have an obligation to listen, take that information and figure out where you can make the best decision for the best interests of the state.
1: Well, we're also in a weird moment where trust in technology seems to be eroding, right? People aren't sure what goes on in their phones. People aren't sure what goes on with all of these apps that are manipulating us or taking our our data, right? And yet you have been a promoter of election technology. Can you tell us how... Improvements in election technology
2: might generate more trust in the democratic system. It's about transparency we have to be as transparent as we can with voters. Some of the technology I'm advocating for with the legislature and the governor's office is gonna bring that transparency. Look, if we can order a pizza on Postmates and know at every second of that delivery where that pizza is from the time the order is made to the time it enters the oven to the time it shows up at your doorstep, we should be able to do that with our ballot. And I think if voters had that information real time, they would understand that, hey, this process is working, the system is working, I have full control of it, understand and have the information I need when I want it. Right now, all 17 counties manage the voter registration process. Each of them does it a bit differently. And then all that information is fed up to the Secretary of State's office. So we're dealing with 17 different processes, 17 different systems. You get some inconsistencies, flipping it to a top-down voter registration system. We'll be able to manage that process. We'll be able to manage that database. And it'll allow for cleaner voter rolls, which voters want in this state. But also, too, it'll provide us the data we need to make smart decisions about our election Policy. We have great elections in Nevada. We have some of the best, well run elections. They are secure, but we can always look at the system and improve constantly.
1: Yeah. So, what's your relationship like, your working relationship with all of those Republican election officials who work for the various counties around Nevada that are not in Reno or Las Vegas, right? And, you know, they might have different commitments, they might have different ideologies. Some of them might not be subscribed to the same process you are. How do you work with them? And have you seen election workers and election officials, even Republicans, facing the sorts of harassment and intimidation techniques that we saw in Georgia?
2: So first of all, I owe credit to the previous Secretary of State who happened to be a Republican. Barbara mm. Sagasky did a phenomenal job of making sure that all Nevadans had a voice and she stood up for what was right. She protected what democracy really means. And I'm mm. grateful for the work that she did with all the local governments and our local clerks because she built that trust with them. And when I assumed this office, she had assembled a really great staff. And I made sure to maintain that staff because I knew it was important to everybody outside that it looked as though I was going to continue the work of the previous secretary. And one of the bills I'm fighting for in this legislative session is an election worker volunteer protection bill, which would make it a felony to harass or intimidate election workers and volunteers because it is happening here and it can't happen here. We could have all the technology in the world, but if we don't have the human component, elections aren't going to work the way we want them to work. The other interesting thing is 80 percent of election workers and volunteers are women. Those are our sisters. Those are our daughters. Those are our mothers. And those are our wives. We have to stand up and say this is not going to be tolerated because we believe in a process and we believe in everybody having the opportunity to exercise their fundamental right to vote.
1: Right. Well, that seems to be a very expansive definition of democracy that goes way beyond the procedural aspects of democracy. Well, let me turn to something else here. You know, on this on this podcast, we have paid a lot of attention to the various techniques of voter suppression we've seen around the country. We've mostly paid attention to the situation in Florida and in Georgia. At times, we've mentioned the ways that voter rolls have been purged in other states, in Texas, Ohio. Uh, Wisconsin. Um, But, you know, I don't know much about what's gone on in Nevada or, for that matter, a lot of the Western states. What techniques of voter suppression have you seen at work in Nevada, if anything, or, or what might you expect in the near future?
2: Absolutely. I think Nevada, look, I get the benefits of a legislature's vision two cycles ago. You know, the legislature passed some of the most aggressive voter access policies. We have universal mail ballots. We have two weeks of early voting. We have automatic voter registration. And with these policy initiatives, we've been able to drive access to the polls significantly. And one fact I like to use is our native communities have been disenfranchised from the voting process for many decades. And through some of these policy initiatives, They've increased their engagement by 25% from one election to the next. And when you're giving a vulnerable community like our native tribes access to have a voice, you're gonna see changes. And Nevada being a very purple state, small populations of vulnerable communities, even students at the college level, can determine the outcomes of elections from a statewide perspective. And they can use that power and use that influence to drive us forward. That was
1: Francisco Aguilar, the Secretary of State of Nevada. You're listening to Democracy in Danger.
0: Well, Siva, Secretary Aguilar sounds like he's deep in the fight for increasing voter access
1: in Nevada. That's inspiring. Yeah, yeah he seems to be doing well. I wished him well. I, I really hope he can continue this important work without facing too much nonsense or blowback or, you know, garbage thrown at him. Well, our next guest is someone who has thought a lot about election law
0: and has studied its history about as deeply as anyone. Bertral Ross is a law professor here at the University of Virginia, where he co-directs one of our partner organizations, the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy. He's written widely on accountability in government and on the relationship between political and economic inequality. Bertral is with us now. Bertral, it's great to meet you and welcome
3: to the show. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Patrol, we all learned in grade school, at least I certainly did, to revere America's founding charter. It's supposed to be a model of democratic innovation, but certainly historians and legal scholars have struggled with the Constitution for many, many decades, and they've highlighted its ambiguities, its shortcomings, its flaws. Mm -hmm. Help us understand what the Constitution really says or doesn't say about voting rights, about representation, really about democracy and how it's supposed to function. You have a pretty dim, uh, jaundiced view of the republic that the founders imagined, don't you?
3: I, I do. And as I read and learned and studied and wrote, I recognized that the Constitution was as much a reaction against democracy as anything else. For the framers of the Constitution, there was a quite a bit of antipathy towards democracy, and that fear arose from what was taking place prior to the Constitutional Convention in the states. In the states in the 1780s, um, there was a lot of economic pain that people were suffering through. There were debtors um, as a result of a pretty deep depression and creditors who were demanding repayment for um, the debt that they had lent out. And many of these individuals, the debtor masses, uh, made demands on government for redistribution and different forms of debt relief to help them, to help them avoid their liberty being taken away um, by their inability to pay their debt. And the reaction of some state legislatures was to be responsive, to do things like issuing paper money, to engage in other forms of debt relief, to be responsive to the democratic voice of the people. I mean, these are the masses that were suffering. But for um, the creditor elite, that represented a threat. That represented a threat to their property rights. And it was those creditor elites that were um, part of the mainstream of the Constitutional Convention delegates who were the main proponents for a new constitution, a new constitution that would take away some of the powers of the state and place it within the federal government and a federal government that was set up to be more responsive to the aristocratic creditor classes. And that constitutional framework created systems of responsiveness to those aristocratic classes by cutting off opportunities for people to vote for members of Congress. Um, They directly cut it off with respect to the Senate by giving the state legislatures the authority to select senators. They cut it off with respect to the president through the electoral college system, and they sought to limit it with respect to the House of Representatives through um, limitations on who could vote, trying to establish property qualifications. But when that ultimately failed, what they did instead was to draw very large congressional districts with the idea being that only those with the necessary reputation and resources would be able to run win in those large um, congressional districts. So, Bertral, that
1: goes a long way to explain who got to run the government, who got to represent the people in the government from the founding, right, from the beginning documents. And, you know, look, our students and I think the general public have a sense of the big leaps that this country took to democratize to fulfill a promise in the 1950s and 60s. The general story here is that we're always getting better, right, that we're always empowering more people to have more of a say on our government, that we're becoming more democratic every year or at least every decade. But that's not the story you have, right? You've you have a pretty good sense that maybe we should not be so optimistic about our electoral progress. Like maybe we're not as great as we
3: think yeah. we are, right? It does it's it's a great point. And our in our um, history is one of struggle um, by those who are disempowered, by those who cannot vote, um, to gain that vote by whatever means um, necessary, whether it be protests, whether it be fighting in wars to prove their value, whether it be direct claims on government actors, whether it be um, even more violent actions um, to make these claims on democracy. And what we've seen over time is very important progression, right? 1850s, 1840s, 1850s, we have states starting to recognize that propertyless individuals can vote and participate in our republic. We of course saw with respect to the 15th Amendment, the extension of, of the non-discriminatory right to vote. to raise minorities and with respect to the 19th amendment to women and also with respect to the 26th amendment to 18 year olds but these have been all part of extensive struggles and while at the same time as formal rules have been developed providing non-discriminatory rights to vote, there have been laws that have been enacted that have represented backlashes towards those very formal rules. They don't directly discriminate in terms of we are denying black people or women or or 18-year-olds the right to vote, but they set up barriers to voting, whether it be in the form of literacy tests, whether it be in the form of poll taxes, whether it be in the form of intimidation or violence it has um, limited the opportunities to participate for many Americans over time, even after the formal recognition of their non-discriminatory right to vote. So, Bertrand, does
0: voter suppression persist? I mean, the poll tax, the literacy tests, those Jim Crow barriers that were erected to suppress voting in such an egregious manner, those have largely been transformed, haven't they? Uh, What active and visible barriers still exist to suppress voting then you have a phrase, passive voter resistance. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And how does that play out in our democracy?
3: Yeah, the tangible barriers to voting have definitely mutated and taken different forms. And so we don't have poll taxes, thankfully. We don't have literacy tests, thankfully. We don't have the white primary, thankfully. Um, but we still do have barriers to voting, such as registration requirements and voter ID laws. And there's pushes to um, purge voter rolls, which are particularly pernicious, because by the time an individual learns that their name has been purged from the roll, it's often too late to register for that election. And there's been you know active efforts that we've seen in several states to um, make it more you know challenging to vote, you know, long lines and limited polls and inability to provide assistance to particular voters who are trying to vote, limitations on more convenient ways of voting like absentee voting or early voting. Now, those are important barriers to voting, but I don't think that they are the most important anymore. I think we have shifted to a context in which information is a key determinant of voting. Mm. People need to know um, two sets of things um, in order to vote in an informed way or even to be motivated to vote. First, they need to know the logistics of voting, when, where, and how to vote. And then the most, perhaps more importantly, they need to know what they're voting for and why they should vote, right? Um, Need to know about the candidates and their platforms and how those candidates and their platforms will be relevant to their own well-being, And so the passive voter suppression that I refer to in in my scholarship co-authored with Douglas Spencer is a component of campaign mobilization efforts. So party campaigns or candidate campaigns have been the key distribution of information about candidates and platforms and basically logistical information about voting. And candidates and campaigns, however, don't mobilize everyone. They have a resource constraint. And so with that resource constraint, they seek to efficiently mobilize individuals. And as part of their efficient mobilization of individuals, they make choices about who they're gonna mobilize. And what do what I mean by mobilize? I mean by contacting them, contacting them in person or on phone or through mailers to share information about the election. And what campaigns have made a choice um, to do with respect to their resources is to target those individuals who have voted in past elections. Those individuals are, they feel, are more likely to vote in the current election. Well, you can see the problem there. Those who have not voted in the past elections, who tend to be low-income individuals, are neglected and ignored, and therefore denied the information relevant to voting.
1: So it seems to me that campaigns are choosing their voters rather than voters choosing their candidates, right? So that reminds me of a subject we've discussed on this podcast a number of times, gerrymandering. Uh, And it's a... Subject of constant concern here in Virginia as we've gone through a couple of different systems to draw the lines for representation. I keep hearing about this mysterious thing called an independent state legislature theory that the U.S. Supreme Court is thinking through now. Can you help me understand what's at stake right now with gerrymandering and this idea that state legislatures might have
3: tremendous power, maybe absolute power to draw the lines? Right. As part of our constitutional document, um, state legislatures have the authority to draw state legislative and congressional district lines. And so they have that authority. But there was a general sense, at least as evolved in the 20th century, that the courts have a role in checking legislatures, drawing district lines inconsistent with the Constitution. It could be inconsistent with the federal constitution or it could be inconsistent with the state constitution. What the independent state legislature theory um, seeks to do is to take state courts out of the mix. Mm. And they seek to deny state courts the authority to check state legislatures with respect to the drawing of district lines. So they can't apply their state constitutions, which protect free and fair elections, for example, to state legislatures actions with respect to drawing district lines. And so then you might be thinking, well, okay, that's fine. Well, we have the federal courts that could step in, right? And the independent state legislature doctrine is not um, directly about the federal courts, although it could potentially be extended to federal courts. The problem, however, is that the federal courts have decided to not intervene in districting disputes anymore. They have decided not to police gerrymandering anymore in this case called Rucho v. Common Cause. And so interestingly and ironically, in that Rucho v. Common Cause case, the reason and one of the justifications for not intervening was the idea that state courts could manage this, right? But then the independent state legislature theory seeks to take state courts out of this as well. And deny or remove any sort of checks on state legislature's drawing of district lines. So the result could be even more extreme gerrymandering than we see right now that's completely unchecked.
0: Wow. Bertrand, I want to come back to something that you were talking about a little bit earlier about campaigns and how they operate, how they rely upon or reinforce uh, certain habits of outreach going to voters that they feel they can rely on, maybe that whose votes they can predict, and as a result are tend to avoid the hard work of bringing new voters into the, the campaign. Is this just bad practice, or are there changes that would be needed to be made in election canvassing r- laws and rules to try to widen the franchise? I mean, I'm just curious about this, and I think our students will be curious because, you know, you you figure the best thing anyone could want is more voters, right? I mean, that's right. a, that's that's natural, that, that and that shouldn't be a problem. I mean, you, you got students out on the sidewalk with clipboards saying, have you registered to vote? This is kind of basic stuff,
3: but from what I'm hearing, you're saying, well, it's nowhere near as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I think from the perspective of campaigns, what they're doing is perfectly rational, right? They are seeking to use their resources in the most efficient way, and they're very uh, reluctant to reach out to new voters. Now, you'll have instances in which campaigns necessarily have to, and this involves insurgent campaigns. Campaigns that are going against the mainstream candidate. Two examples from our recent history, President Barack Obama in 2008, he was an insurgent campaign against Hillary Clinton, um, and he had to reach out beyond sort of the ordinary um, base of voters. And then another insurgent campaign is President Trump in 2016 he had to fight against the mainstream Republican candidates and reach out to an entirely new set of voters. But for the mainstream campaigns, the typical playbook is to identify the universe of voters and try to get your universe of voters, more of your universe of voters to turn out than the other side universe of voters. Anybody outside the universe of voter is essentially left out. Are there any laws that could be responsive to this? You can't force campaigns to reach out to people, right? That's you know not good policy. It's probably not constitutional either. Um, but what you can do is perhaps incentivize them to reach out to individuals, right? If we gave individuals, in addition to having the power to vote, money in the form of vouchers that they can contribute to campaigns, maybe that's another carrot that would lead a campaign to reach out to those individuals who are non-voters. Or perhaps there's a state fund that could provide them with compensation, right? And a matching, a match to the resources that they put in to mobilizing those um, individuals who are non-voters.
1: Well, we could also have a real rich public media
3: system which we've abandoned in this country <laughs> too, which you know which could get, be a very important source of information right, delivery cuz well. our
1: media systems just as incentivized to target their own true believers, than, rather than uh, expand an audience. We're, we're segmented in every possible way of life. Now, speaking of segmenting, you opened our conversation talking about the ways in which our original founding document, the U.S. Constitution, clearly bends power toward the wealthy and the already established, right, the incumbent powers. Well, that hasn't changed all that much either, right? I mean, can you connect the idea of poverty and these failures and flaws in American democracy?
3: Yeah. I mean, I just i am a firm believer that we cannot truly understand um, and resolve economic inequality until we get at the problem of political inequality between socioeconomic classes. And that political inequality manifests itself in a huge disparity in who turns out. There's a 30% turnout gap that has been consistent since 1964 between the top 20% in terms of income of Americans and the bottom 20%. And that is a very troubling development. Who are politicians going to be responsive to? Well, they're going to be responsive to voters, right? Um, And they're responsive to money. And so with respect to the first, you know, um, low-income classes are a huge disadvantage because they do not Vote as much and they don't vote because they see that politicians aren't responsive to their interests. And then you have politicians seeing this, that they're not voting, and they advance policy platforms that aren't as responsive to their needs as they should be. And there's really nothing by definition that low income individuals can do about that. Now, there are ways in which policy can respond. Right. There's matching programs that have been set up by states in which some states give five to one, six to one matches um, on contributions, which could amplify the money that an individual contributes. There's also public financing, but that's been under constitutional scrutiny and attack. Um, you know, we could think about ways in which we can improve our campaign finance system to even things out a bit, but we have to, in order to do that, pull these marginalized individuals off the sideline. Because even if you have matching funds, if no one's going to contribute um, from those income classes because they feel so alienated from politics, then those matching funds are not going to have any effects on leveling the playing field with respect to campaign finance.
0: You uh, you mentioned money in politics, and in Democracy in Danger, we touched on this issue, and uh, in particular the Citizens United decision of 2010, the Supreme Court decision, and you know one of the threads that runs through that decision was well, free speech is more important than the problems of inequality that might result from this uh, outcome. What do you make of that argument?
3: Yeah, it's a frustrating argument for me. And it starts with the Buckley v. Vallejo case in 1976, where even in that case, they relegated equality concerns to a lower rung than free speech concerns, right? And so a hierarchy was constructed from the very beginning in 1976 between free speech and liberty of speech and equality. But there's a bigger threat, and it's a threat to all of us. And it's a threat to the stability of our democracy. January 6th was, of course, motivated by President Trump. The story we're told and the story, a I main component of it is that these are you know, folks that have bought into a conspiracy theory, unfortunately, um, that the election was stolen from them. But I think we need to also understand the deeper underlying motivations behind it. And I do believe that many of those who participated in this insurrection are folks that feel that the system has not served them particularly well. And so they latched on to President Trump as, you know, a savior of sorts who would put government in the service of them, right? You feel so alienated and marginalized from the economic and political marketplace in such ways that you feel like you you're disempowered from doing anything. And therefore, if there's an opening, even in the form of an insurrection, you might take it. And so these are broader global considerations and why the court relegating equality concerns to a subordinated status is so uh, discomforting for me because it pushes us further away from resolving the instability in our American democracy.
1: So, uh, Patrol Earlier, we heard from Cisco Aguilar. He's the Secretary of State of Nevada, and he is fighting election denialism in his home state, the very phenomenon you were talking about when referring to January six, two 2021. Now... The recently indicted Donald Trump didn't invent electoral shenanigans, but he's changed the ways we've thought. He changed what we imagine is even possible in American politics. So, look, voter suppression is one problem, but faith in the electoral system, that's even more corrosive. Are these two things related in some way? Can you connect these long practices of voter suppression with our general erosion of faith in the electoral system?
3: Yeah, I think that they are intimately connected. What what I see in terms of the pattern is that, you know, voter suppression arises where there is fear of democratic change and your fear of democratic change leads you to redirect that fear towards the election process itself. And so the arguments that are made is that we need to preserve the integrity of the system. And the way to best preserve the integrity of the system is to enact rules that tend to have suppressive effects, because the integrity of the system is dependent on preserving the status quo composition of our electorate to avoid the changes that would arise from a change in the composition of our electorate. And so I think that they are intimately connected in that particular way. And one of the things that we need to think about and response is, how do we sort of increase faith in democracy, even in the context of democratic change? I see the election deniers thinking that if our candidate does not win, we will now be ignored, neglected, subordinated, subjugated, all of these harms will fall upon us. And if we don't uh, um, stop, this change, right? We will, um, we will, we will suffer the consequences. As we uh, bring our conversation
0: to a close, give us an example of something where you have seen something work, uh, yeah. where faith in the system might be rewarded, um, where mobilization efforts have really made a difference, even on a small scale. They're all around us. It's just that they tend to get washed out in the alarm that we all have about the erosion of norms and so forth. What occasionally do you see that that's
3: working that gives you a spark of of hope, if anything? Yeah. So I've talked about the turnout gap between the wealthy and the poor, but what we've seen also in recent times is much more interest in elections, right? There's much more engagement of the people in our election system. I see sort of actions by groups um, like Fair Fight in Georgia with Stacey Abrams and even some groups on the Republican side that are focusing on mobilizing those that are disenfranchised, trying to bring them in the political process. I'm also heartened by the level of attention of actors, um, whether it be in the nonprofit space or in the government space on democracy, Mm -hmm. on sort of seeking to safeguard our democracy, protect our democracy, revitalize our democracy. And I think that that's critically important because for a period, you know, we sort of neglected our democracy. We didn't really think so much about the structure of our democracy. And although these problems seem insurmountable, gerrymandering, voter suppression, etc. cetera. Um, I think that one way and the first step towards trying to solve these defects is being attentive to them and starting to think about what solutions there might be.
1: Well, Bertral Ross, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in
3: Danger. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you, too.
1: Bertrand Ross is the Justice Thurgood Marshall Distinguished Professor of Law here at the University of Virginia. He recently co-authored, with Spencer Douglas, a paper in the Cornell Law Review called Voter Data, Democratic Inequality, and the Risk of Political Violence. You might have encountered his commentary on Bloomberg, PolitiFact, or NPR. Bertrall also directs UVA's Karst Center for Law and Democracy.
0: Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back.
1: So, Will, uh, over the course of our time together on this podcast, we have looked at voter suppression, we've looked at voter rights. What does Bertral Ross teach us? Where, where does he take us now?
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing that I took away from listening to him is a single theme running through American history, and that's the impact of economic inequality on our democracy. He started by analyzing the Constitution from an economic lens and saying, you know, it was designed by very wealthy people to enhance their political power, and it has been working just fine yeah, <laughs> in on that those regard, terms ever it's since. It's a great
1: success, yes. And so,
0: you know, he said, look, uh, voter suppression, uh, like voter ID laws and polling, you know, moving polling stations and closing polling stations. Those kinds of things are still pernicious. They're still there, but they're not the only story. They may not even be the biggest story. What's really the story is the way in which poor people are being left out uh, of the process on purpose by both parties. So it wasn't just, oh, the Democrats are doing this right and the Republicans are terrible. It's both parties are not incentivized to reach marginal voters, to spend money, to bring in these voters. This has a polarizing effect over time. So in a way, he's arguing that we have not just economic inequality in America, but that we have political inequality. And Bertrall did a beautiful job in reminding us, America looks this way because it was designed this yeah. way. If we want to change it, we have the tools available. Right, right, right. The, the, and that's why you know, he emphasized the optimism, the possibilities of political engagement. We can improve our democracy. The power is there for us to do it.
1: And I get a lot of that optimism from Cisco Aguilar in our conversation with him. I mean, he's, he's actually on the ground improving democracy through its levers and its building blocks. He's not only investing in instilling trust in the electoral system in a very important and growing state, but he's also just as invested in education and making sure that the benefits of education spread way beyond the historical winners. So, Siva, are you ready to run for office? Uh, I think I'll stick to podcasting for yeah. that. I, certainly not in Nevada, because apparently I can't pronounce the state properly. It's Nevada. Okay. I'll stick to Virginia. <laughs> well, that's a wrap for this episode of Democracy in Danger. Next time, you'll hear from a rapper whose music helped launch a youth movement in South Sudan.
0: Peace is a state where you're free, free from disturbance, and your mind at ease. Find us on Twitter in the meantime at DND Podcast. That's D I N D Podcast. Or visit
1: DINDanger.org and leave a comment on our show pages. You can subscribe to Democracy in Danger wherever you get your audio. And don't forget, we're also on SoundCloud, which has a great tool for embedding our episodes in your own website. Or in your course pages. Democracy in Danger is
0: produced by Robert Armengol and Rebecca Berry. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger Walters, Ellis Nolan, and V. Webster. Special thanks to Mary Garner McGee and Samyukta Mahadevan.
1: Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan
0: and I'm Will Hitchcock. Talk to you soon.